Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus on Africa, we're talking about the fears LGBTQ plus people live with in Ghana now that a bill further criminalizing them is passed by Parliament. It is a sad moment for myself as an activist, an individual who identifies a gay man, and even for the community in general. We are also calling out to the president to not assent to this bill, because assenting to this bill is just giving up on Ghanaians and giving up on our lives as people. We're also discussing gun culture in South Africa following the shooting of a teacher by a student in school. Guns have always been part of South Africa's landscape. So as a colonial settler country, guns played a really important role in the subjugation of local populations and of course also in the resistance to apartheid and the liberation struggle. Fast forward to 2024 and guns remain very much part of our day-to-day living. And in conversation about the circular economy, we discover what it is and what we can do to get it going. It's Thursday, the 29th of February. First, we go to Accra. In Ghana, there is fear among the LGBTQ community after Parliament approved a bill that further criminalizes them. The bill rejected a proposal that would have replaced jail terms with non-custodial sentences. Of particular concern is that the bill punishes people who are seen to promote or advocate for those who are lesbian, gay or other non-conventional sexual or gender identities. They face up to 10 years in prison. Promotion or advocacy, we should say, is very loosely defined. The penalty for being gay is increased from 3 to 10 years. Alex is a leading gay activist in Ghana. It is a sad moment for myself as an activist, an individual who identifies a gay man, and even for the community in general. It is a sad moment for us. And it is sad in the sense that we have made every effort to draw Ghanaians' mind, especially Parliament's mind, to how draconian this bill is and how this bill is going to divide us as a country and subject parts of its population that identify as LGBTQ persons to disrepute. And it is why we are admonishing Ghanaians and we are also calling out to the president to really look at this bill and not assent to this bill, because assenting to this bill is just giving up on Ghanaians and giving up on our lives as a people. That's Alex in Ghana. Tetua Manu has been involved in fighting the bill. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Can you tell me how you would describe yourself? So I'm Professor Emeritus Emerita of African Studies at the University of Ghana. And I've been a gender and human rights activist all my life. I'm a trained lawyer and an anthropologist. So when this bill was outdoored, I, along a group of other academics, you know, professionals, were part of what is now called the Big 18 that signed a petition to Parliament rejecting the bill, calling it unnecessary, uh, a violation of our constitution 
in every way. So I've been involved with the bill since it was outdoored. Outdoor is an interesting term, right? It's very Ghanaian for for when children, when babies when babies are taken out for the first time sure. after they've been born. So the bill essentially, can you tell us what exactly it meant to achieve? Of course, the bill makes very clear what its intention is, and it seeks to criminalize anyone who identifies as gay, lesbian, pansexual you know, all kinds of identities. Just the identity is criminalized. The offense is criminalized as well. But what is so glaring is just criminalizing someone for what it is they are. In clear violation of Ghana's constitution that grants rights to every person, irrespective of gender, ethnic origin, religious belief, you know, all of those stipulations in the constitution. I imagine that the Ghanaian constitution doesn't stipulate sexual orientation as a right. No, no, it does not. But it does stipulate gender. And what that is significant because in previous constitutions, it has talked about sex. In the 1992 constitution, it's talking about gender. So it's talking about gender identity. And in any case, the Ghanaian constitution says that in enumerating what rights are enjoyed, the fact that a particular right has not been spelt out does not mean that, you know, it is not protected. In other words, it is anticipatory that what were considered rights in 1992 may be expanded as, you know, time goes on. So it was very prescient in acknowledging that. And it talks about all persons, all persons. It does not say that its enunciation of rights or protections are for straight people. It talks about all persons. The main proponent of the bill, the MP for Ningo Pram Pram, Sam George, has this video in 2015 where he clearly enunciates that the Constitution protects all persons. And he says it does not matter whether they are gay, straight, lesbian. And the Constitution has not changed between 2015 and today. So it is strange that in 2015, you know, the rights of all persons, and he said it in his video, including the rights of gays, lesbians, etc., were protected or were to be protected. And then come 2021 and here in 2024, suddenly the rights are not protected. He calls them preferences. Now, I do not know what his uh, scientific opinion is, but whether they are preferences, choices, identities, we do not know. The fact is that people identify as gay and this bill seeks to criminalize that identity. So what do you think has changed between 2015 and now? Well, it's politics, you know. So in, in 2015, he was speaking in defense of the then president, John Mahama, who was alleged to be in bed with gays because his friend Andrew Solomon had helped to promote his book and he was being attacked. And so this was the context of it. So if in 2024 or 2021 he finds himself as an opposition MP and is sponsoring the bill, the context has changed. And and, uh, so the only thing that has changed is the politics, whose side you are on rather than the content of the constitution or anything. Did you watch the debate? Yesterday. Yes. 
I saw a video of, of an em, almost empty parliament. Right. And so we are very curious about the quorum that was used to pass the bill because I heard anyone in favor say aye and then aye. Anyone in favor say no, there was silence. The A's had it. How many A's had it? We do not know. However, our constitution also is very clear about the kinds of quorum that parliament needs to pass laws. So we are waiting for the official record of how many MPs were actually in the chamber and took part in the debate. So there's an article 104 that governs the court for such actions, and there is also a Supreme Court decision on this. So we are very curious. We want to see how many eyes actually were there. You know, yeah. as for the no's, we are not surprised because there has been so much intimidation of um, MPs that, you know, if you do not vote for this, we will make sure, and this is coming from religious leaders, we will make sure you do not return to parliament. And it's, it's significant. The current majority leader in parliament has done several interviews where he's spoken about fear, the fact that when he's Colleagues speak to him outside the chamber. They express very different opinions from what they do in the chamber because there is intimidation, both from the Speaker of Parliament, who is basically, he has no vote. He, he has, was supposed to be a neutral presence, but he has been player, referee, coach, everything in this process, bringing religious leaders to, to Parliament when there is supposed to be um, you know, a reading of the bill, etc. Yes, so there are so many procedural issues that have accompanied this bill. I'm surprised that you said that uh, intimidation has played such a huge role in this and that it may have swayed people one way or the other, simply because I know that in many societies, and I know Ghana a little bit, there is quite strong feeling in countries, public opinion being opposed to extending these rights to gay people people when you said but, preferences but nobody is asking yeah, nobody yeah. is asking for rights to be extended the rights ah. already exist do you see i think there is there is a basic confusion about what lgbt people want what they are asking for they did not ask for anything that we have a constitution that protects everyone what this bill seeks to do is to claw back, take away the rights that are already protected. Yes, I agree with you. The surveys have shown high levels of intolerance, but you do not use the results of, of a survey that shows high levels of intolerance to then enact laws that criminalize people. When you see intolerance, what you do is that you promote education, Yes, you, you find ways to explain to people why they need to be tolerant, that in a democratic society, it is not just about what the majority wants, but it is also about the protection of the minority. You do not take the bigotry or the intolerance and enact it as into law, therefore giving people, you know, the right to assault, to discriminate, to extort, to punish people who do not conform to your idea of what human beings should be or should act. That's the lawyer and Professor Emerita at the University of Ghana, Techua Manu in Ghana.
Last week, a 13-year-old South African boy was arrested after shooting his principal. The boy has not been named and he now faces a charge of attempted murder. The teacher he shot is recovering. Violence in schools in South Africa is quite common. The shooting shocked many, but it's also not unusual. What was shocking was the level of premeditation that went into it and the fact that a 13-year-old had access to a gun. Guns are plentiful in South Africa, but this incident has once again brought the availability of guns and the use of guns into the spotlight. Adele Kirsten is the co-founder of South Africans Against Guns, and Glisten Nikerk is the director of Metro World Child. They're both in Johannesburg. I began our discussion by relating one of my own experiences of gun violence in school many years ago. Now, I know Eldorado Park very well. I went to school in Eldorado Park. I was about 14 years old, and one of my classmates shot and killed somebody by accident. And it was a huge shock. But there were guns around then in our community. It belonged to his father. He wasn't meant to have access to it. Just tell us, how regularly do you hear about that? And the reason why I'm asking you this is we have a story in the news about a child that had a gun and shot his teacher. But this was pre-planned. How easy is it for children to get guns in South Africa? You know what? Of course, one of the, in this instance, it was through the dad. Now, all the signs were there already. So uh, this this actual kid actually brought ammunition to school before. Uh, there's WhatsApp group that was created. So in your instance, in Alvarado, Park, most of it now is through gangsterism. You know, kids get the, the, the guns directly into their hands. Who sells guns to children, though, Glisten? It's the drug dealers. We, we find that, you know, for uh, the dealers to get into schools, they need to get an actual kid on the inside that will sell it for them. Adele Kirsten, co-founder of South Africans Against Guns. Where do these guns come from? How come it's so easy to give a gun to a child? So guns in South Africa are like guns in any part of the world. They're part of a legitimate trade uh, and they are 99% of them are legally manufactured. They get traded between countries. They're manufactured, traded, they sold, they are lost and they are stolen. Uh, and certainly a lot of guns used in gang-related violence are illegal. So in South Africa, we have approximately 5 million licensed firearms. And the majority of these are in the hands of civilians, 2.8 million uh, guns in the hands of 1.7 million uh, civilians. And this includes your private security industry. There really are three main sources in which uh, guns move from the legal market into the kind of criminal market or the illicit market. Um, And the biggest source is through the loss and theft of legal guns, whether they're from the police uh, or from civilians or the private security industry. On average, 25 guns are lost and stolen every single day. It seems to me that South Africans like guns. Lots of people have guns in South Africa. Is there something like a gun culture. And who actually owns guns in South Africa? Historically, guns have always been part of South Africa's landscape and are very deeply uh, entrenched in our history. Uh, So as a colonial uh, settler country, guns played a really important role in the subjugation of local populations and, of course, also in the resistance to apartheid uh, and the liberation struggle. Fast forward to 2024, and guns remain very much part of our day-to-day living. I mean, 34 people are shot and killed every single day in this country. In terms of who's owning guns now, 
we have to work with available data. So uh, so we know that 80% of guns uh, are owned by men. You're seeing a shift in young black men uh, applying for licenses and increasingly young black women, given the high levels of uh, violence against women in this country. Looking at some of the data, we can make some kind of guesstimates that the majority of licensed guns remain in the hands of older white men over 50. And that's, I guess, the sort of legacy of apartheid, uh, where black people were obviously prohibited uh, from owning guns under apartheid legislation. Listen, how many people in El Rarado Park do you know that have guns? Every spaza shop owner has a gun. Mm-hmm. Every uh, e-hailing service driver has a gun that is in El Dorado Park. Quickly, for the benefit of our listeners, a spaza yes. shop yes. is a small corner shop that is usually yes. owned by somebody from a foreign national. Could be Eritrean, Ethiopian, Somali, Pakistani, whatever. Kids look at people with guns as a sign of power. Not too long ago, we had one of the politicians in court for celebrating by shooting a gun into the and I th- I'm not sure if that case is still in court, but Gauteng, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Gauteng has just last month started rolling out CCTV cameras in uh, uh, hotspot schools. Extra 4,000 school wardens been rolled out. Adele, we are talking also about the absence of an effective police force where communities feel that they need to protect themselves, right? Let's look at government response. What for you would be the ideal way of making South Africa gun-free? If you want to reduce your gun violence, you really have to do two things. One is you have to mop up and recover the illegal guns. You have to get them out of circulation. These guns move from hand to hand. Once you know, a criminal's committed a crime with a gun, he moves it on to someone else. He doesn't want to have the gun in his possession. So that would be the first step. And in order to do that, you need dedicated sort of specialist firearms units, people where these are operations that are intelligence driven. You then also have the opportunity to turn off the tap, which is to reduce the number of weapons entering the legal market in the first instance. We have an amendment bill that could be brought to Parliament. And so gun-free, together with uh, several of our partners, are really advocating for this uh, law to come to Parliament. But of course, we're going into a general election. So this will only be something that will happen towards the end of the year or even next year when there's a new administration. In 94, you know, after our first general election, we got a new gun law. Once that gun law was introduced, we saw a halving of our gun deaths and a significant reduction in the availability of guns. So we've done this before. Uh, We can do it again. It's worked in other countries uh, as well. Glisten, the people that you work with, do you think that they would be willing to consider a life without guns? Yes, definitely. They just kids. You know, I spent a few years in New York and I know how it works within the schools. There's metal detectors when you walk into schools and it's a very normal thing. That's the direction which I believe we should go to protect our kids and protect our teachers. Uh, because from what I hear, guns are not going anywhere. So your suggestion yeah. is as a baseline metal detectors at school. What else do you think? We need more people like you know, the politicians, all of these idols uh, to speak into it that kids are following after, these music stars. But all we see on social media is them glamorizing the lifestyle, drugs and owning guns. 
Do any of you have guns? Uh, two years ago in New Jersey, I did some lessons to how to handle a gun. And through that, I realized that, you know what? Listen, if you're willing to pull the trigger, then yeah, get yourself a gun. But if you're not willing to pull the trigger, don't do it because you're going to make a mistake. I don't have a gun. Uh, and obviously with Gun Free South Africa. But I, I, I think... Listen, you're raising uh, some really important issues around what will help shift, you know, young young people's uh, attitudes or views or perspectives on these. And uh, your thing of your own experience. And again, it's about if you want a gun, just think about the risks. And I know that might sound strange, but shifting attitudes, providing young people with alternatives. This this is long-term work and it, it requires everyone to be involved. Listen for a final comment. A lot more needs to be done. Like I said, maybe it's time to bring in those metal detectors because more and more, and more guns are ending up uh, in the wrong hands. Adele Kirsten and Glisten Nikak, thank you so much for your insights and your expertise. Very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Audrey. And nice to meet you, Glisten. Clissa Nieker from Metro World Child and Adele Kirsten from South Africans Against Guns. They were talking to me from Johannesburg. Climate change is regarded as one of the greatest threats to our existence here on Earth. Cycles of extreme weather patterns leading to drought as well as flooding are speeding up and spreading. These have far-reaching effects, loss of life, livelihoods, displacement, famine and war. We can reverse things though and there are regular high-level meetings to agree on the best ways to do it. But we don't always agree and we don't always comply. But I suppose we keep trying. So let's talk about the circular economy which requires businesses to reduce their intake of raw materials and extending the life cycle of the products that they produce. As individuals, we too play a role by reducing our waste, recycling and reusing. But it needs much bigger, much bolder interventions. So let's discuss the circular economy with Josephine Wawira in Kenya. She works with the Sustainable Inclusive Business Initiative that's helping businesses make the transition. So start with the basics. What is a circular economy? How does it work? I'm glad that you said we start the basics because I will want to make it as simple as possible. Now, imagine you're thirsty in a sunny day like today. And so you walk in and buy a bottle of water or a bottle of your favorite soda. And after you finish, of course, what you needed was the content of that bottle and not the bottle itself. So currently what we often do is that we just discard that bottle anywhere that we feel like. And imagine otherwise if we took that bottle, took it into a collection point, for instance, or even if we are going home, we carry that home what we call carry your own waste and then we dispose it off in a separate waste bag that is not mixed up with organic waste or food waste and then when the recycler or the collector comes to collect that bottle then it is able to go as clean as it is to the recycler and for recycling either to other materials like buckets where we can use that for washing our clothes or other materials like seats. So it's repurposing it. 
it is repurposing it. Let me just yeah. full disclosure. Mm. So what you're talking about sounds mm. like something that we used to do in the olden days with yes. plastic bottles when I was growing yes. up. Okay, so yes. you're, you're going to add some more? Rightfully said, because I remember when I was growing up, um, we would buy milk from our neighbor and uh, we would go with the same bottle every day in the evening. Of course, we would be uh, responsible for making sure that it is clean and hygienic, but it was the same bottle over and over again. Also, um, I remember when we were growing rice, I come from a rice growing region, and after we finished, the husks from the rice or the maize would go to feeding the animals that we had, the cows and the goats. And so nothing uh, eventually went to waste and we reused and repurposed all those materials. And especially in an African context, this practice has been there for generations. It's only that now we have given it a fancy name Yes. Economy. Yeah. And people actually that live uh, and, and I think it's it's also a kind of issue that affects mostly middle class people, I'd say, or a middle class lifestyle, because people who yeah. live uh, in poorer areas with less money, mm. they actually do mm. recycle quite admirably, I'd say. But are we talking yes. about just what individuals do or are we talking about Mm. larger scale on a massive countrywide regional continental wide scale it is beyond an individual but that is where it starts it starts from you and me but when we look at it at a larger scale it goes to the private sector the producers of the products that we consume it goes to the government with the policies that they put in place to make sure that there are systems that push us as the consumers and the producers to implement uh, sustainable practices you know it's not just about waste management it is also about how we design our products as producers, that is the private sector, so that they are more reusable and recyclable. Okay, so give us an upscaled version of what you're talking about. Not so long ago, something called um, mm. built-in obsolescence was very much a buzzword where washing machines or cell phones, mobile phones in this mm. country or fridges couldn't be fixed they mm. had to be replaced. Yeah. So why? Because that was called sustainability, right? So how does that differ mm. from circular economies? Sustainability can also be mainstreamed in what we currently call the linear economy. And the linear economy is where we take things from natural resources. We make things that we produce often for what we call single use. So single use means we use them once and then we discard them. But then someone can argue uh, we are practicing sustainability but by making sure that we collect those things that are disposed of. On the other hand, this model that we are calling a circular economy is challenging that linear system and saying we have to close the loop. So it's simply like a circle, circular circle. So products, instead of going back to the uh, environment as waste, it is it becomes an input for more production and so what happens in that case is that we also reduce the amount of natural resources that we take from nature where is this happening already and how well is it working this particular model 
at scale now, we are seeing businesses and governments putting in place the measures. For instance, in Kenya, what we have experienced is a level where input, for instance, the investment in recycling facilities has gone a long way. And this has been empowered by the presence of uh, policies such as the extended producer responsibility. And this requires that producers take responsibility of their products even beyond their life cycle, so after we use. So with this law that has just started being implemented, every producer is anybody who puts the products in the market, whether you're importing or you're making it locally. And with that, we are seeing now businesses are starting to join mandatory PROs or producer responsibility organizations. And these they form a group where they are now mandate and put in place collection plans. And that what we are seeing is also impacting what was initially called the informal sector or waste collectors. And these people have not been considered as major stakeholders in circular economy. But now because of the moves within the country to a transition, jobs are being created where people are earning a decent living as waste collectors because now we have what we call the collection points. We also have the MRFs, which is the material recovery facilities, but also increasing recyclability. And in recycling means people are being employed in these areas. And so jobs are also being created. So how does the Sustainable Inclusive Business Initiative, the organization that you or the project that you're involved in help Kenyan businesses yeah. transition because it's quite easy for businesses to say well actually we don't really need to change it's not an imperative climate exactly. change whatever you know the sustainable inclusive business is the knowledge center under the Kenya private sector alliance the apex body representing all the businesses in Kenya which means number one we have the voice of the private sector and it is easy for us to convene the private sector and the government together and say look this is where policy is and this is where businesses are in terms of implementing those policies but we also go to the ground and implement projects that are now touching on the communities where we serve and one of the examples is a coast project where we're working with women and youth at the coastal area to make sure that we sensitize and empower them to create business cases from what we call waste to value. For instance, we we did have one of the projects or one of the beneficiaries of that project that is now converting paper waste into new notebooks that are being used in school. So we are helping this uh, group of young people to collaborate with schools where they get those used um, exercise books directly from the schools themselves and they remake them to new notebooks from recycled uh, you know, paper and then they can go back to the students. How do you yes. get buy-in from big companies like mining companies, mm. like multinationals? Mm. Right now, I'm mm. quite bitter over something that I saw mm. recently where we buy mm-hmm. plastic, right, in South Africa and here in the UK. I'm from mm. South Africa. You mm. buy, you, mm-hmm. if you want a single-use plastic bag, you buy it, mm. right? Some countries, mm-hmm. some some mm. some shops don't sell them anymore. You you have to buy a sort of yes. long life bag. But the companies yes. that are charging you for it are not yes. using that money in order to 
remove plastic from the from, you know from from the cycle from the waste cycle. Yes. Instead, they're still yes. dumping it, dumping it. They're just making more. Yes. They're just making money out of the fact that we want to do something good. So, how do you get buy-in from mm. companies where it really, really does matter? What we are currently doing is we are running an initiative called, for instance, the Kenya Plastics Pact, which is part of a global plastics pack network by RAP and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, currently 14 of those across the world. So in Kenya, for instance, what we do is that we have set targets for businesses, particularly producers of, because this one is dealing with plastics uh, specifically, uh, producers to meet certain targets by 2030. And so when members sign up to that, they commit that they will do whatever it takes as individual companies. I will admit that it is not an easy journey to, you know, work with the private sector because a lot of the mentality and uh, has been around making profits. And so it has to have a business case of while we focus on making profits and uh, as the uh, private sector representative, you know, ensuring that we create a conducive environment for doing business, we also have to look beyond and think of the three Ps, the two other Others being the people and the planet. So whatever you do today to make your profits, if the impact on the people and the planet is negative, then that also, based on the reporting, and now we have ESG, and of course now um, going back to reporting to the Kenya Plastics Pact, we have to you know check whether your profits were just profits or the impact that they had were or positive or negative. Josephine Wawira, thank you very much. It's been very interesting talking thank to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm, thank you. Karibu sana. Asante sana. Josephine Wawira in Kenya. She's with the Sustainable Inclusive Business Initiative. Sunita Nahar, Yvette Wagira Maria and Charles Gitonga worked on Focus on Africa from Nairobi and London. Paul Bachibinga supervised our activities. Chris Kuzaris was our technical producer. Our editors are Andre Lombard and Alice Mudengi. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Africa Daily. In the latest edition, there's an extended interview with Nigeria's finance minister as one of Africa's wealthiest countries navigates a cost-of-living crisis. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts.